Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, For Advent this year, we are reading together about the coming of Jesus from Luke's gospel, Uh, but we're not reading from the parts that we most often think of this time of year. Uh, If you were here last week, uh, you might remember that we talked about Jesus teaching about his second coming. And uh, both this morning and next week, we're going to go down uh, to the muddy banks of the Jordan River and hear a guy named John, uh, who, whose job it was to get ready a people for Jesus to come on the scene. So I'm going to read from Luke 3 for us, verses 1 through 9. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we hear John, uh, and we hear this preaching, and it is uh, like a splash of, of cold water on our faces. And so we ask that you be happy to use his words, this word that we've read and heard together, the word of Luke and the word of Isaiah and the word of John all together. Um, to wake us up from whatever spiritual sleepiness we have, uh, whatever uh, spiritual lethargy I have or any of us here have, that you'd be happy to use this word by your spirit to go into our hearts, to meet us there, to cast away all of the darkness that's hidden there. Show us the grace of Jesus again and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I had a a friend in college uh, who grew up on an apple orchard in uh, upstate New York. That's what their family grew. They grew other things too. They kept uh, animals as well. But those other crops and animals were mainly for their own table um, or to trade with other farms for uh, other food. So anyhow, once uh, we were talking, and he just kind of casually let it slip that his family, uh, when he was growing up, they ate steak two or three nights a week. Uh, Now, of course, he had been off the farm um, 
for a while. He knew that that statement was going to be pretty remarkable to whoever he said it to, and I definitely took the bait. I probably said something like how amazing that must have been that he got to eat steak two or three times a week. Um, But he told me that he didn't really think of it like that. Uh, The way he put it was that it was kind of weird for him to find out that eating like that a couple of times a week was a big deal because he thought steak was just something that farm kids had to eat. Um, He was actually a little embarrassed about it, didn't want to talk about it a lot. Until he left home, he had no way of accounting for the fact that other people would think differently. It was just what he knew, and so he took it for granted. And I, uh, I thought about that this week while I was mulling over the first couple of verses in that story that we just read together. I'm sure you noticed it as I read it. Luke piles up a ton of names at the beginning of that passage in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee. And along with those three names, Luke throws out four other names, four more power brokers over God's people, two more Roman governors, and two high priests who colluded with the Roman power in charge. Church, these are incredibly powerful, powerful people. And taken together, those seven names represented about a hundred years of rule by the empire, the last 25 which had seen a Roman governor sitting on a palace, on a throne on a, in a palace in Jerusalem. These guys ruled by oppression, and they ruled by fear, and they ruled by intimidation, and they ruled by the threat of swift, merciless violence if you got out of line. That was just the world that God's people swam around in. And it's the world that the first readers of Luke's gospel swam around in. It is just what they knew. (laughs) And of course, we're so removed that a list of names means very little uh, to us at all. It's easy to take it for granted, just like it was easy for my friend to take his extraordinary diet for granted. And so Luke piles up those names. And he piles up those names not because he's like an imperial history buff and he wants us to be impressed. He piles up those names precisely because he wants them to land with a thud. He wants his readers and he wants us to stop and to take in those names and to begin to take an accounting of the darkness, to feel the trouble of that time. That's what things were like on the cusp of Jesus' advent. That was what things were like. People lived with a gnawing sense that things were not right. This imperial power, their own leader's collusion with the empire, that was definitely not right. But the people who were living in that time, the people who were reading that gospel, if, if they were being fearlessly honest, they would admit that they weren't right either. You know, that they weren't always faithful people, that many of them had become complicit, many of them had become comfortable in navigating the system of oppression and fear and intimidation. Many of them had learned how to benefit by it. So that's why Luke trots out the parade of overlords before we ever meet old John, so that we can take an accounting of the darkness so that we cannot take it for granted. 
And what I want to say, church, is that that is a very, very important part of this season of Advent. That is a very important part of this moment in the year in our life together. Fleming Rutledge says that Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of the incarnation of Jesus is diminished to the vanishing point if we don't first take a fearless inventory of the darkness. And I think that's important, church. And in the end, it's incredibly life-giving too because every one of us in here and everybody we know and everybody we've ever known has some kind of darkness going on in them and around them. If we can be honest, that's, that's what's happening in our lives. You know, we've got grief, grief over relationships that we have uh, broken or that have broken and we don't know why. Some of us live under the imprisonment of an addiction or some of us have shame over things that we've done or we feel shame over things that have been done to us. We have uncertainty about our future. We have uncertainty about the well-being of those we love. We read the news again and we see that the specter of, of mental illness takes its toll again in churches and families and communities. We've been through months and months of this kind of crazy nervous breakdown trying to live through a pandemic, trying to respond to that. This sharp cultural and, and political polarization that just floats all around us with all of its kind of loose anger and outrage just ready for us to grab and eat and spit back out. This increasing level of violence in our city on pace to be the worst year ever. <laughs> in, in 25 years, the worst year this is the darkness that we face. Tish Harrison Warren wrote that Advent holds a space for our grief. And it also reminds us that in one way or another, we are not only wounded by the evil of the world, but are also wielders of it. And church, <laughs> all of this stuff, it needs the light of Jesus coming. It needs it. It's absolutely necessary for dark things to be brought into the light. And I want you to hear this, church. I want you to hear it, and I want you to believe it, that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, they have the final say, the final say about darkness. It is going to end. The darkness is going to end. And that means... that people like us can stop uh, acting as if it isn't here. <laughs> we can stop trying to cover up, cover up for it. We can try, stop trying to frantically compensate for it because we don't have to bear it alone and we don't have to bear it in hiding. We can drag whatever that darkness is into the light and we can speak the truth about it because the forgiveness and the healing that Jesus secured for us through his death and resurrection and ascension is real. And that is the very, very good news of Advent. So if there's some darkness that you're protecting, 
If there's some darkness you're trying to manage and you feel like you're alone, please don't do that. You don't need to, and you weren't meant to. Because the forgiveness and healing that Jesus offers is real. So drag the darkness out to him or confide in a friend or confide in someone you trust and ask them to help you drag it out to him and find that healing. Find that forgiveness because that's why Jesus came. That's the point. He came into the darkness. And I love, I love this part of the story. I love this twist in the story because right under the noses of those seven guys, unnoticed, quiet, in these very small places, two little baby boys were born. <laughs> and now these boys have grown into men. And their lives are going to be like a knockout punch to the mouth of the powers that be. As Luke puts it, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And if you know the story of John's birth, then you might remember that when Zechariah, his dad, who was a priest, was told that he was going to have a son, he was pretty incredulous about it, for very good reasons, by the way. And he said, God, let me have a sign, some kind of sign that this is going to be true. Well, he got a sign. And the sign was that he couldn't talk until John was born. And when he was finally able to speak, when he finally got his words back, this is what he said about his son. You child, you'll, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, to give light to those who sit in darkness. And John's dad was right. <laughs> That's his boy. He's the one who gets people ready for the coming of Jesus. John is like the guy who runs around the house and wakes everyone up so they can walk outside and see the sunrise together. Jesus preached about it. John preached about a king, and he preached about a kingdom that was coming. And this kingdom that he's talking about is not a place you go to. It's not a land. It's not a castle. It's not a province that you have to journey to. It's not a state of being. It is the very real and very active presence and rule of God in this world, in this world that we live in right now. John is saying that God is coming to keep his promises of healing and forgiveness and restoration for his people. He is also coming as a judge to make the world right again and to restore justice and peace everywhere. He's coming to do business with darkness, both the darkness that's out there and the darkness that's in here. And Luke is so uh, intent, he, he, he wants us to know exactly what it's happening. He wants to plot this into the beautiful story of God and his world. He wants to plot it so clearly that he stops to quote at length from Isaiah 40. It's one of my favorite images in the Old Testament. <laughs> a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then there's this beautiful picture of all of the created order bending over backwards to make sure he can come. 
You know, when God comes to his people, no one has to build a bridge for him over the valley because the valley just comes up. When God comes, you, you don't have to show him how to get around the mountain because the mountain just makes itself low. When God comes, uh, roads straighten themselves out and rough places level themselves so he can walk right on through. And I always think about this image and I think, why, why does it work? <laughs> why is it so beautiful? And it's because I think all of this communicates an air of ironclad inevitability. <laughs> There's not a better than average chance this is going to happen. There's not a Lord willing in the creek don't rise sensibility to any of it. This will happen. It will happen. And that's why these words of promise are always words of comfort to people like us. God wants us to know, and he wants us to know without a doubt that he has spoken the last word about darkness and that his days are absolutely numbered. He, is, he has come and he is coming and the weight of his glory will be revealed and all flesh will see it together and darkness will be beaten back. The justice and peace in which and for which the world was made will be restored. The sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. My guess is that John, in a million years, would have never guessed what that was actually going to look like. I mean, I think if John probably had to guess what it was going to look like, it, it would have been a lot different than what it actually did look like. But this is the scandalous logic of the kingdom that John announced. It's the mystery of it, that the fullest expression of God's darkness crushing glory the fullest expression of God's darkness crushing light is found in the self-giving love of the cross where Jesus dies so that we can have light and life. Where Jesus dies so that the darkness can be dispelled out there and in here. And you know what, church, like we talked about last week, this, this doesn't make us, um, knowing that this is true, it doesn't make us into a wistful people. It doesn't make us into a people who are just waiting for some golden, better day to come that we believe will come. It doesn't make us into people who are just trying to keep our heads down until this better day arrives. No, it's meant to make us into a wise people. Knowing this makes us into a wise people who work hard to make the life of our gracious God and to make his peaceable kingdom more present on earth. We work towards what we hope for. We align our whole lives toward what we hope for. We let the future that we know will happen order our present life, both for our good and for the life of the world. And this church is why John comes hot. This is why John comes preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John wants us to know that the presence of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus, it gives people like us two choices and only two choices. <laughs> On the one hand, we can bury our heads in the sand. We can keep living as complicit, compliant citizens in the closed status quo, graceless world that we live in, 
the world that's carved up by our own modern Herods and Pilots and Tiberiuses, run down by oppression and consumption and marching secularization, or we could loosen our grip on all that stuff. All that stuff that's hurting us, that's hurting the people around us, we could open our hands up and, and give it away and stop running scared and turn to face the one who made us and who gave his life for us and say, I'm sorry. Help me. Help me to live in your kingdom. Because that's what repentance is. And you and I, we don't do that staring into the void with our fingers crossed. We do that looking directly at the cross of the God who happily and willingly came into our darkness and who succumbed to our darkness in order to rescue us from it. When we say that we are sorry in faith, we're forgiven, we're restored, we're set free, we're set free again if we've been away for a while. And we're given the life that we have been made to live under the gracious and peaceable rule of Jesus. And when we do that, when we do that, we're ready. And you know, for John, nothing could be more urgent than this. You know, even now, he says, right now, this very moment, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It is a stark matter of dark and light, which is why he greets those who come out to meet him. And they came out in droves because they knew something good was going on. But he greets them with a, hey, you brood of vipers, you sons and daughters of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why does John do that? That's... Why does he say that? Well, it's because he doesn't want them to feel warm and safe. Not in the false and thin and pretend delusional ways that they were used to feeling warm and safe. And we've got those too, if we're being honest. And so he invites them and he graciously invites us to respond. He tells these crowds coming out to see him, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, the thing that matters most is this whole life fundamental realignment to the God who is coming to rule in Jesus. This genuine ongoing submission to God's reign that results in ways of living and being in this world that change, that look different. And so that leaves John's word as relevant to me and you right now as it was to the people on the day that he first spoke it. (laughs) So what do we say right now in this moment to that invitation to turn again, to be forgiven for the first time or again, and to be set again into the life that we have been made for. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to see, (laughs) that you would help us to open our hands and let go of all of these things that we do to manage all of these things that we do out of fear to cover up or out of shame to avoid, that you'd help us to open our hands to see this coming light and to believe again. Father, do this for our good so that we'll grow up and so that we'll mature in our faith, 
Father, we ask that you would do this so that you can, by your Holy Spirit through us, love this broken world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.